0: You're listening to a podcast from Northeast Christian Church. For more information about Northeast, go to ncclex.org. Thanks for listening. Last Sunday, we started a three-week series where we're looking at how the boundaries around sex have gotten blurred in our culture. You know, when it comes to the subject of sex, there are more opinions than we can even imagine. Sex is that one area of life where we have trouble agreeing on where the guardrails should be. Guardrails are those moral boundaries that protect us from harm. And there is a great debate in our culture as to where those guardrails should be or whether we should have guardrails at all. I think uh, if you know the hope that we have for this series, you'll know that we want to just continue a dialogue by taking a look at what God has to say about sexuality today from his word. I think of these biblical truths in Scripture as guardrails. For At least for us as Christians, they're guardrails. These Scriptures are designed to keep us on the best path that protects us from the trouble that exists beyond those guardrails. So I want to encourage everyone who's here to have an open mind as we talk about truth from the Bible. You're a sexual being. Surprise. If you didn't know that by now, you've probably been living in a cave. But you are a sexual being. And how you think about sex impacts your identity, your view of God, and your relationships with other people. And I'm, I've been concerned for a while that much of what we've been taught in our society about sexuality just hasn't been true. Through this series, I want us to look at and expose some of these fallacies or myths that we've been told and we've believed. And some of us have even been guided in our lives by these lies. Truth can get blurred by lies. And these lies are most convincing when they're repeated often over and over again to the point that we just assume they're true. We've heard them so often. So, this morning, we're going to continue this discussion looking at these fallacies and then summarizing the truth that comes from Scripture and talking about how God's Word can actually shatter these lies. Short review from last week. If you didn't catch last week's message, I hope you'll go back and watch it. These messages are interconnected. I'd love to have done them all in one setting, but that would have been about a three-hour message. And my wife said, 20 minutes on sex is enough, honey, really, really. Last week, we examined the fallacy, fallacy number one, which God is anti-sex. There's a feeling among many in the world who think that the Bible is overly restrictive regarding sex. And since God takes this very strong stand against sex outside of marriage, then he must be anti-sex. But nothing could be further from the truth. The truth is, God is extraordinarily pro-sex. And you can go back and watch last week's talk to see how we explain that. Fallacy number two we're going to look at this morning is a Christian's sex life and views of sex are boring and out of touch. Maybe you didn't know that as a Christian, but a lot of people in this world see you as boring and out of touch when it comes to this topic. But the truth is that the Bible actually directs Christians to be erotic in their marital love. And I bet very few of you thought you'd hear the word erotic this morning in the sermon. <laughs> yeah, all right. There's always somebody, right? There's always a... The Bible is not at all awkward about its promotion of healthy sex life within the context of marriage. Inside of marriage, God commands us literally to be erotic, to deeply enjoy one another and relish giving pleasure to our spouse. Listen to what Solomon the wisest man on the earth at that time, as he counsels his son. And I, I just I want you to know, I know I read this verse last week, but it was so good I had to use it again. Here it is, okay? Proverbs five eighteen May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always, may you ever be intoxicated with her love. You may be surprised that my favorite phrase in this is, may you ever be intoxicated with her love. Solomon's saying, be drunk on the love of your wife. He's saying, may you be turned on by the wife of your youth. Sexual attraction to your husband or wife is God's will. It's actually part of his design, his plan. God doesn't just talk about this in the Old Testament. He also talks about it in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians, the 7th chapter. Paul is addressing some questions and dysfunctions in the church concerning the views they had about sex. Now, we need to remember that we don't live in the most sex-saturated time in history, even though the Internet may make us feel like that's the case. Other times and places have also seen sex elevated in unhealthy ways. And the first century in Corinth was one of those times and one of those places. If you became a Christian in Corinth in the first century, you actually found Jesus in a triple X culture. There were temples on almost every corner where spirituality and sexuality were offered in this distorted, toxic mixture. In most of their pagan religions... Prostitutes, both male and female, were actually part of the religious rituals. The ancient world wasn't separated from this either. All the way back to the Canaanites who occupied the promised land before Israel got there, they featured temple prostitutes, twisted ideas about fertility, as well as practicing child sacrifice. This pattern of pagan religion mixed with sexual distortions was prevalent throughout the Old Testament and it was also active and causing damage in the first century as well. When Paul arrived in Corinth, people heard the gospel and they trusted Jesus as their Savior. And as they began to follow Jesus, they brought with them their sexually distorted backgrounds. There were two major miscalculations that dominated the view of sex within the church in Corinth. One group had a view that was found in 1 Corinthians 6, 13. It says this. Excuse me. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food. Pretty profound, right? That was kind of a hedonistic slogan uh, of the day in Corinth. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food. In other words, if you had a physical desire, like wanting food... You deduce that God gave you that desire for food, so you should satisfy it. And so many people, their belief was that if you want sex, if you decide, hey, I want sex, you can have it anytime, anywhere, with anyone. That's how they grew up. And that's how how people lived. To this group, Paul essentially continues the narrative. He says, no, the promise may seem logical, but it misses God's design and his purpose for sex. Paul explains that sex is sacred and God places it in a very special and unique environment for our joy and our protection. Sex functions a lot like a fire in a fireplace. God wants the fire to burn white hot and passionate inside the fireplace of marriage. It's there where it brings light and heat and warmth and intimacy to the relationship. But when the fire is taken out of the fireplace to places where it shouldn't be, it destroys things. It actually destroys its own purpose. Well, there was another worldview that influenced the Corinthians, and this went the opposite direction of sex with anyone at any time, anywhere. The Greek philosophy of dualism had taken hold with many in the Corinthian church. And dualism teaches that the body and the material world are all evil. The spirit and the immaterial world, on the other hand, are good. So when these new believers came to Christ, they deduced in their mind, we're not going to have sex at all, even inside of our marriages, because it's impure and unholy. Sex has to do with the body, therefore it's evil. Paul's response to them is found in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 2 through 5. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps for mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul basically was telling the Corinthian Christians that a husband and wife are one before God. You husbands, including your body, are to serve your wife, and you wives, including your body, are to serve your husband. Sex is a vital part of the marriage relationship. And you're not to deny one another except for specific times of prayer. And then he says, in these prayer times, it's strongly implied that you should get together sexually soon after that season of prayer so Satan doesn't tempt you sexually. This radical teaching on sex by the Apostle Paul was like throwing a hand grenade into the middle of the Corinthian culture. They view forcefully, con- this view forcefully contradicted both this idea of casual sex and meaningless hookups, as well as this idea that sex is evil. God was presenting a dynamic part of the marriage relationship that affects all of life. Sexual intercourse is a crucial aspect of the bonding process, and it's a part of the mental, physical, and relational unity that God desires in marriage. Some of you may be familiar with Dr. Walt Laramore. He's one of America's best-known family physicians. You may have seen his books or even read some of them at one time or another. He has a book entitled His Brain, Her Brain. And in it, he explains what happens to a man's brain when he has sex. Lean in, ladies. You're going to want to hear this. Researchers have discovered the release of a hormone or enzyme that promotes bonding in a man when he has sex with a woman. This chemical reaction has also been shown to cause a man to have a desire to open up, set aside his insecurities, and become self-revealing. This helps him to the, in the process of being known to his wife, which we talked about at length last week. God designed sex in marriage to build an incredible bond in the relationship. This Physiological reinforcement by design where man opens up is one reason why regular quality sexual expression is vital in a healthy marriage. Somebody in the first service said amen at that point. Okay. In our world, though, where sexual freedom is promoted in every corner of life, I personally find it a bit ironic when research from the world Reveals that God's plan and his design Are actually the best way to go And such was the case In an exhaustive study On sexual practices in our society Back in 1994 at the University of Chicago It was arguably the most comprehensive study On sexual behavior of our time The Chicago study became a landmark book Titled Sex in America A Definitive Survey In a 1996 article in current thoughts and trends, the author Robert Moeller takes on the task of summarizing this entire study. And here's a couple of things that he said. Everything people think about how sex works in America is far from the truth. The impression given by the media in TV, movies, and commercials would lead one to think that the hottest, most frequent, uncomplicated, consequence-free sex is experienced By single people living in the swinging life. Swinging lifestyle. Wrong, he says. What we see and hear almost almost a daily basis, on a daily basis, is a complete fabrication cut off from reality. Well, what did they find? If that isn't true, what is true? The report found that single people actually have less sex than married people do. In fact... The research indicated that the people who are most sexually satisfied have sex most often and have the greatest satisfaction in their sexual relationship are those in monogamous marital relationships. Moeller goes on, he says, The researchers even went so far as to suggest a link between traditional values, like values in the Bible, and sexual fulfillment, They say their figures imply that an orthodox view, like what you read in the Bible, of romance, courtship, and sensuality may well be the one way to sexual satisfaction. They stop just short of advocating Judeo-Christian morality, but the data speaks for itself, Moeller says. Apparently, Christians may be a little embarrassed to talk to their kids about sex, but they're having a great time in the bedroom. Here's the key point. Those whose relationships honor God's design receive the benefits God built into that design. Christian men find themselves motivated to communicate when they love their wives like they never had before. There's more vulnerability and trust found in a committed relationship under God's covenant design. And it's not just about two people. Christ is in the center of a Christian marriage. Satisfying sex is built and thrives in a safe and loving environment. An environment where you find vulnerability and trust and serving one's partner rather than focusing primarily on just what you can get out of it. The popular disdain and dislike for monogamy and for Christian principles about marriage has led to far less sex and far less satisfying sex by those who disregard the wisdom of God's design to put it in layman's terms, they have no idea what they're missing. Fallacy number three. As long as people love each other, sex is okay with God. Have you ever heard that? The truth is, the Bible prohibits all sexual relations outside of marriage. God says it's actually a pretty narrow path sexually. This third fallacy that has saturated our society is the claim that as long as people love each other, God's fine with sex. He's fine with it. As long as they love each other. You've probably heard this line of reasoning at one time or another. Two people who really love each other, why should God really care? After all, marriage is just a sheet of paper, right? Why can't we just be committed to one another? And the answer to that question is simple. You're not really committed unless you're married. Now, some of you may think I'm a prude, and that's okay. Just hear me out. You can say and even feel as though you're committed. But without the legal and the public aspect of marriage, anybody can walk away at any time in that kind of relationship. Oh, I know. Some of them say, oh, you can walk away from a marriage. That happened to me. But the truth is, it's not as easy. Let me illustrate it. Several years ago, I was counseling a young man who told me about an incident that happened in his life a few years earlier. He said he came home from work one day and all of his stuff, everything he owned, was out on the porch. You see, he and his girlfriend had been living together for a a while and uh, he came home to all of his stuff on the porch with a note and it just simply said, we're done, it's over. For him, it was devastating. You can only imagine... Those who think that this is a better way to live actually underestimate the pain that a person goes through when their partner walks away from them and says, we're done. They even underestimate the pain that they'll experience if they're the one who walks away. Private promises to be faithful that shy away from being witnessed by others. Relationships that don't enter enter into a spiritual covenant and a legal contract of marriage, these kinds of promises, you should be very suspicious of them. So instead of a marriage, a majority of people in our culture today are opting for a relational test drive. It's technically what is referred to by researchers as cohabitation. I mentioned last week, 74% of those 30-year-olds who were surveyed said that they had cohabitated with a member of the opposite sex at some point already in their lives. Seventy-four percent of 30-year-olds. Living together before marriage or instead of getting marriage seems logical. I mean, I wouldn't try on a pair of shoes, buy a pair of shoes without first trying them on, right? Or I wouldn't buy a car without first test driving it. But we're talking about another human being. Do you seriously want to put them on the level of a purchase of a pair of shoes or a car? Does that really build value into them? To say, hey, I just want to test you out for a while. See if you're worthy of me. Ironically, we see it as logical. But most of the research indicates anything but logical. Here's just a few of the findings, and I mean a few. I had to narrow this down. There was so much data on this topic specifically. I found it really remarkable. And I would encourage you to do some research on your own, personally, to find there is tons more. But here's what, here's what the researchers found regarding cohabitation. Living together is considered to be more stressful than being married. Couples who live together are at a greater risk for divorce if they marry later on than their, co- than their non-cohabitating partners. Cohabitating couples had a separation rate five times that of married couples and a reconciliation rate of one-third that of married couples. Cohabitating couples are more likely to experience infidelity. Cohabitating couples earn less money and are less wealthy than their married peers later in life. Cohabitating couples have higher levels of depression and substance abuse compared to their married couples. That's what the researchers say, and I literally am just scratching the surface on this. So what does God say about it? Well, here's what God's Word says about sex Outside of the marriage relationship, let's just take kind of a, a thirty thousand foot overview. The first is Exodus twenty fourteen: You shall not commit adultery. That's pretty clear. I don't know if it's got wiggle room for you, but I hear what God is saying there. First Corinthians six eighteen: Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside of the body, but whatever sins whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Ephesians five three. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. And 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. The word that's used in those last three verses that I quoted from the New Testament, immorality, it's a very broad word in the Greek language. The word actually in Greek is pornea, and it's where we get our word pornography from. In the Greek, pornea refers to all sorts of sexual distortion, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, and other behaviors associated with those things. When Paul says in Ephesians 5.3 that there must not be even a hint of immorality or of pornea, What he's saying is there's not to be any kind of sexual fantasizing, lusting in your mind, petting, etc. Some people believe that it's fine to mess around sexually just as long as you don't have intercourse. That's the line you can't cross. But Paul emphasizes here that all of those practices outside of the framework of marriage are prohibited. And God sees them as morally wrong. Pornia is a broad stroke. It refers to all sexual sins. And the Bible is really clear. In Hebrews thirteen four, we read, Marriage must be respected by all, and the marriage bed kept undefiled, because God will judge immoral people, pornea, and adulterers. He's covering all the bases here. If you're breaking the vow of marriage by stepping out and having sex with someone, or you're engaged in some aspect of sexual uh, immorality, God's saying you're violating your marriage bed. Marriage is honorable, and sex within marriage is said to be a beautiful experience. And I would testify, but my wife and daughters would not accept that. Sex outside of marriage is referred to in two specific words, fornication, the biblical word for premarital sex, or sex between two people who are not married, and then adultery, the biblical word for sex with someone other than your spouse. Both of those, fornication and adultery, are condemned by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. So here's the question. Why is it that this sexual act that Scripture portrays As such a beautiful experience within marriage, but so strongly condemns it outside of marriage. Why? Well, I think if we understand the purposes God has for sex, perhaps we will understand the prohibition against sex outside of marriage. You see, when God issued these commands thousands of years ago about sexual purity, He already knew about AIDS and what it would do to our culture and herpes and chlamydia and all these other social diseases. He knew about the emotional damage, the emotional scars that would come from casual hookups. He knew the shameful flashbacks that people would have as they're having sex with their partner or their spouse and they're remembering previous sex acts with other people. He knew about all the pain that came with casual sex And all that that brings into a person's heart and mind. He knew that when you're sexually reckless before marriage, the possibilities of extramarital affairs escalate dramatically when you do get married. And you know, I wish I could tell you that we're insulated here in the church from all of that. But even in the last month, we've seen this to be so true. People are often shocked when they realize how clearly the Bible prohibits sexual immorality. And they think that's a narrow path. Nobody can ever actually follow it. But it is important for us to think about. I hope you don't sell yourself too short. The truth is, you deserve better than what you think is what's best. It's important for us to ask the question... Why would God be so adamant about steering us away from illicit sex? I mean, since we know God is pro-sex, then why all the restrictions on sex? Why such strong prohibitions against meaningless and casual sex? And the answer is simply this. God knows. He knows that sexual desires or sexual acts will impact the rest of your life. As Paul said, Most sin is sin outside of the body, but this immorality, sexual sin, is sin against your own body. God wants what's best for us. He wants to protect sex for two people to bond in a setting where they can know each other intimately in the way that God designed for Adam and Eve to know one another. God declared the boundaries of the Fireplace of marriage To protect you And to give you the best When it comes to sex You may find this hard to believe But sex is is a big deal to God He's a big fan of it In the right context But he's also a big fan of you And he wants what's best for you Remember this Sex is a sacred gift From God To us So treasure it and get the most out of the value by confining it to the framework or the fireplace of marriage. I want to close with just a couple quick thoughts, and then we'll pray. I know topics like this are a little bit uncomfortable, and some get mad, and I get that, and I appreciate you having an open mind. I hope that you'll commit to being here next week, if at all possible. And if you missed last week's message, as I've mentioned already, please go back and watch it online. These messages are interconnected. They're like a really good hoagie, you know? You put one layer of meat down, another layer of meat down, another layer of meat down, and you squeeze it together with a little mayo and oil and vinegar. That's a good hoagie. Well, that's kind of what this series is. They all kind of build on each other. These talks may cause you to think about sex differently. Maybe even change how you think about it. Maybe you've crossed some guardrails sexually, and you don't think you can ever change. I'm here to tell you, you can. Some of you may even be, you know, hooked on pornography. You find yourself, man, I just, I can't break the cycle. I wish I could. I just, and it's so shameful, and I'm so embarrassed by it. I'm going to tell you, God can break that chain. There is hope. In that, in a series like this, these talks can kind of remind you of mistakes that you've made in your past and may actually cause you to start to feel guilty again all over. You know that God has forgiven you, but for some reason it seems as though this comes back and you're feeling bad about it. And I want to remind you that sin that God has forgiven is gone. You're the only one remembering it. He isn't. And maybe you've never taken the step to have your sins washed away. I want you to know that no matter what you've done, Jesus offers you to receive his gift of forgiveness to you. He wants to give you a chance to start with a clean slate. So don't settle for less. You deserve better, and God offers that to you. At the bottom of your notes, there are some names of some people who, if you need to go a step further than just a sermon on Sunday. You wanna talk with somebody. There's a couple staff people listed there. There's also a counselor who we use on a regular basis for people who can take you a little further if you need to do some deeper work in this area. And I hope that you'll do that. I hope you'll do that. You deserve better. You really do. Don't settle for the fallacies the world tells us. Trust what God says. And let's get the very most of the value that he has given to us in the treasure of sex. Let's pray together.